didn't see you there. Would you guys like to set sail on this ocean of flavor with me? I'll be your captain. I'm Steve Harrington. And I'm Colin. And I'm Whitney, and this is Scoops Ahoy, a Stranger Things podcast, where we go week by week, chapter by chapter, and we are recapping the entire show to ultimately, hopefully, coincide with premiere of season four. So if you caught our first two episodes, they are on the first two chapters of season one. And this week, Colin has our summary for episode three, titled Holly Jolly. Chapter 3 of Season 1, titled Holly Jolly, debuted on Netflix on July 15, 2016. It was directed by Sean Levy and written by Jessica Mecklenburg. It has a runtime of 52 minutes and 10 seconds. We open late on the night of Tuesday, November 8th, as Barb wakes up after being snatched by the Demogorgon to find herself in the parallel universe Eleven hinted at in the last episode when she flipped the game board. This is where Will is supposedly hiding from the monster. Meanwhile, Nancy and Steve are doing some heavy petting and making out on Steve's bed, completely oblivious to Barb's screams for help. The next morning, Wednesday, November 9th, Mike, Dustin, and Lucas are launching Operation Mirkwood, and they have all the Vietnam weapons and tasty snacks they need to go find their friend. They leave Eleven behind and tell her to meet up with them after school. While Eleven is hanging out in the Wheeler house, she flips through the TV and notices a Coke ad, which gives her a flashback to a time in the lab where she used her powers to crush a Coke can. Hopper, meanwhile, gets an abridged tour of the lab, is convinced everyone is lying, and then heads to the library where he looks up everything he can about the lab and Dr. Brenner. Joyce, convinced Will is trying to communicate through the lamps in the house, buys every Christmas light she can at Melvald's and strings them all up. Karen comes by with a casserole, and little Holly sees the monster trying to get out of the wall in Will's room. Jonathan is ratted out for being a perv after Nicole sees the photos he took of the pool party the night before, and Steve breaks his camera and rips up the prints. Nancy, though, sees that one of the photos is of Barb moping on the diving board, and she picks up the pieces and stuffs them into her purse. It's 3.15, and Eleven is waiting for the boys when she sees a cat and has another flashback. This time, she refused to hurt a cat in the lab, but had no problem snapping the neck of two orderlies who threw her back in the same closet from the previous chapter. Nancy calls Barb's mom to see if she's heard from her daughter, and then Nancy goes back to Steve's house, where she finds Barb's abandoned car and notices something scurrying through the bushes. Back at the buyer's house, Joyce gets through to Will via the Christmas lights, and after a little conversation, he tells her to run! just as the Demogorgon breaks through the wall. She indeed runs. Hopper and Powell are still at the library when they get a call and rush out all lights and sirens. Eleven leads the boys to Will's house and says that's where he's hiding. And just as they're about to get really pissed at her, police cars and an ambulance fly by and everyone's off to the races. Hopper, it turns out, was called to the quarry where apparently Will's body has been found. Mike goes ballistic on Eleven for lying that Will is still alive and then he runs home to Mommy. Joyce, meanwhile, is running down the middle of the road when Jonathan pulls up. Everyone is hugging and crying. The end of chapter three. And what a chapter it was. And I know you said last week that this was probably your favorite episode of the first season. So where do you want to start? (laughs) There's so much because I think when I first watched this with it starring kids, you kind of think that It is a kid's show. Obviously, there's the scary stuff with, you know, the Demogorgon in the first episode and all the experiments that are being run by Eleven. But, and maybe I'm wrong here, but it doesn't seem too far off to think that this is aimed towards a younger crowd. And so I was shocked that they didn't pull away from that scene with Barb 
when she is in the upside down and, you know, she's coughing up, you know, gross water and she's trying to get away and something eats her on screen. (laughs) I mean, I guess you don't see it actually consume her, but it, I remember being shocked that they went this, that they didn't pull away really. It's like, now this is real, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, you know, yes. the, the guy was pulled up in the elevator at the beginning of the series and, and, you know, something got will and you can kind of see its outline and stuff. But, and then we saw, you know, Barb has been sucked down and now, and the camera just slowly pans Pulls out back. Yeah, for 13 seconds. And it was just, it was just such a, such a great show. And that's all before even, you know, you get the, the titles, like the title credits coming right. in. And I don't know if this was a really popular way to do shows at this point. But I remember loving that you got like such a heavy action and shot, I guess, or scene before the opening credits in this show. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. They, they give you something really good and juicy. It's kind of, um, I'm actually rewatching lost at the same time that we're okay. doing this one. And they did a lot of the same thing. It's kind of, whether it's a flashback or a flash forward or a, you know, just a straight plot point, but it always ends, you know, with the, you know, something crazy. And then it goes and lost right. you know, comes on the screen, but yeah, same idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's great how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was interesting that the Duffer brothers didn't write this one. Um, I mean, they obviously, you know, were in charge of the story and that kind of thing. Um, but I actually in the, in the book worlds, worlds turned upside down that we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Um, they said the original plan, and this was the Duffer Brothers talking, the original plan for us was to direct all the episodes of the season. Alas, we got a little ahead of ourselves. And by the time production wrapped on the first two chapters, we needed additional time to write the final two episodes of the first series. If there was ever a time when we were overwhelmed, this was it. We were editing the first two episodes, prepping episodes five and six, all while writing scripts for episodes seven and eight. Oh my we, God. Didn't, we didn't have a nervous breakdown, not exactly, but one of us did accidentally break a cell phone and spill water on its computer. Just when things were becoming really unmanageable, our producer, Sean Levy, swooped in like Superman and took over the directing reins for episodes three and four. Oh, I cannot imagine the pressure. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> having to do so that's how that. that's how Sean Levy, who was the, you know, the mm-hmm. executive producer, um, you know, how he came to direct episodes three and four. And he actually went on to direct episodes three and four of the subsequent seasons, too. So, OK, yeah, I think things were getting a little bit crazy for them. And I mean, they obviously had no idea you know, the popularity yet because nothing had been released yet, but right. they, they certainly knew the workload was was starting to pile up. Yeah. So did they have to pitch this to Netflix as one whole package or did they, I'm not sure how it works. I'm not. So the Duffer brothers had shopped it around to like a dozen different places, if not more, I think it was maybe 20 or 30 different places. Didn't get any traction from it. Eventually it landed on the desk of Dan Cohen at 21 laps. Who's um, who works with Sean Levy and Sean Levy's production company is 21 laps. Um, And then Cohen took it to Levy and Levy fell in love with it and thought it was great and got with the Duffer brothers. And then they took it to Netflix and Netflix, you know, kind of jumped on board. I think they actually knew somebody at Netflix, Um, but they had, they had the script, they had the Montauk script. And then they also had their lookbook, which is kind of like those, the boards, like a a vision board, a vision board. There we go. Vision board that you like put on Pinterest and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So they had, you know, kind of the, the things that had influenced them books and movies and kind of the look and the title treatment and, you know, colors and that kind of thing. When they film it, though, do they not already? I guess they don't. That's kind of a dumb question. They don't have them already 
filmed. So they're filming. I would, I would just think that they had all the episodes written before they started. No. And that, and that's, that's what I think the Duffer brothers were saying in that quote. I mean, they were still writing. I think they had an idea of where it was going. They had an Mm -hmm. outline. I mean, they had a rough idea of, of what the show was, you know, going to be, but they hadn't obviously written everything yet. So. Oh my gosh. That's so stressful. Just thinking about it. Yeah. Like (laughs) I could not do that. Yeah. It was crazy. Did you notice that there wasn't as many movie references? I'm sure there are like overall. Yeah, there, there were some, I mean, there were, um, I mean, we had star Wars with the millennium Falcon. That's not really a reference. It was just a toy mm-hmm. they, were, they were playing with. Um, when you get into the MK ultra stuff and the LSD and the patients, that's kind of a fire starter kind of thing. The Stephen mm-hmm. King. Well, MK um, ultra was actually real. That was like a real right, right. thing that um, happened. But as far as the LED, LSD and the patients and that kind of stuff, that was, that's Firestarter. There was a lot of uh, close encounters in this. And and the guys, the guys actually mentioned that too, um, because Richard Dreyfuss plays Rory Neary, who was kind of off on an island by himself. Mm -hmm. You know, he saw this stuff, but it was kind of like him against the world, which is very similar. How Joyce uh, is. To how Joyce is. Yeah, absolutely. So. And I wondered if this was one that, do you think it was, or it was just, simple because that's when Mike got home from school but when he tells her three one you know look at your watch 315 when it says 315 meet me here that's almost identical to what Gene Hackman tells Alec Baldwin's character when he's helming the red October turn the dial until you get to 315 until it says 315 and I just wondered because I know that I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly the hunt for red October is seen in the trailer for season three, which is obviously way ahead, but right. I just wondered if that was hey, at this point. Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this is the first instance of us hearing about the Ruskies and, mm-hmm. you know, Russian spies and, you know, star Wars, as far as, you know, Reagan's missile defense system goes, not, not the movie, not the movie. Um, so yeah, this was kind of the, and this will obviously play itself out as we go on, but this was the first time we did actually kind of, and their, their whole thing was they wanted this to be kind of cold war based, the Duffer brothers, but this is kind of the first time that we actually get into actual cold war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like talking about it. And I remember thinking like, it's definitely not going to go there. Like, it's just, they're yeah. just talking about it. It's just, you know, chatter in the, in the background to make us think, but surely not. But no, yeah. yeah, yeah, we're so. going there. Absolutely. I so. couldn't get over how sassy Nancy was to her mother. <laughs> yes. I, like, I, I would... my notes. Have Nancy attitude. I mean, good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't call. And did you notice that when she is sitting up in Steve's bed and she's trying to wake him up to say goodbye and he does the typical mm. douchebag move where he doesn't even roll over and she's right. like, okay, I guess I'll see mm-hmm. it. See you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It looked it looked like it was daytime out that window. It did, yeah. There was it was lit, but I think that was obviously the lights out by the pool or, or something. Yeah, like that. But, but I yeah, kept it did, yeah. I was wondering, I was like, did she spend the night? But still, regardless, yeah. I know that cell phones weren't around back then, but I would have been livid yeah. if I was Karen. Yeah. I think mom. this is the first chapter where they kind of start I, they started out again we've talked about how steve was like rapey in the original mm-hmm. treatment and then certainly a douche 
and he has his moments in this episode, but I think this is kind of where they started realizing they had something special with Joe Keery and wanted to make Steve make not him. as douchey. Mm-hmm. He still breaks Jonathan's camera. Yeah. Um, fine. I get that. You know, I might've done the same thing if, you know, somebody had, you know, taken pictures of your girlfriend. Exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, him not going around and blabbing to everyone that, you know, they had spent the night together, even though mm-hmm. I, I don't think anything happened other than them just making out. Um, that was, that was kind of non douchey. And oh, you don't think and... she lost her virginity? I don't think so. I, well, I always assumed she did. I, I, I mean, that it, was some heavy petting. I know, but they're still wearing the same things later when, you know, it's not like they're naked. You know, she wasn't getting dressed. I mean, she was in her bra and her pants and he well, was like, in, I felt like they I couldn't know. show her getting. And when you, Tommy and Carol, they're talking about her moaning. I just assumed that she did, know. but no, she definitely did. We will get there, but I know for a fact that she did. We'll come back to this in a later episode, but she did. Okay. As of right now. Speaking of Tommy and Carol, though, every episode, I think they can't get any worse. And they top it every episode. Yeah, her little line about Mr. Mundy and can blow me or Yes. Yeah. Like you'd have detention Saturday. She's so proud of it. Yeah. And the girl, did you catch an eye on the girl? Did you keep an eye on the girl with the red, the super red hair that Nicole? Yes. She pops up again in season three. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, they, they, I think they, the Duffer brothers took Steve's douchiness and kind of gave it to Tommy and gave it even more to Tommy. So now (laughs) their douchiness is now exponentially elevated. Yes. (laughs) You're like, why is anybody friends with them? Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah. Okay. uh, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, the Wheelers um, TV, when Eleven is left at home alone and is flipping Mm -hmm. through the channel, she sees uh, Reagan's address to the nation after the 1983 Beirut barracks attacks, um, which actually happened on October 27th. Um, But, you know, a week and a half later, it could still be on the news or whatever. Right. It's close enough. Who cares? Uh, and then He-Man, um, and then Coke. The, the latest uh, the latest offering from the Harmony Treasures oh. collection, <laughs> and then the, and then the Coke ad. Coke is it? Um, so we get some we get some hefty eighties uh, references there. Yes, we do. Uh, did you notice this is a little bit? And we've said before that it's not super spoiler heavy this show, but we do spoil a few things and we are going to discuss some theories and this is the first episode that they gave several hints to the importance of this lady named terry ives yes and we see her we see newspaper clippings and i went and i looked up the excerpts and but there was nothing too shocking but the head because the headlines pretty much gave it away and it was hawkins lab blocks inquiry these are the order that hopper reads them in as well hawkins lab blocks inquiry and it was this has something to do with Terry suing Hawkins lab for experiments or for the, for the disappearance of her daughter, um, alleged experiments, abuse. Again, it's Terry. The third article is MK ultra exposed, which talks about Terry Ives and the stuff that she experienced. And finally, Dr. Martin Brenner named in lawsuit and the lawsuit is coming from Terry. So yes. we get an idea that this 
Terry lady is going to have some significant part in the future. Yes. And we know that, that Dr. Brenner is connected to 11 and Terry is connected to Dr. Brenner. So you, your, your wheels start spinning a little bit. And this was of course, all after Hopper arrived at the library and um, um, came face to face with Marissa, yes. who was none, none too happy to be reminded <laughs> of Hopper's existence in the town of Hawkins, Indiana. <laughs> Which is very funny. If you play the, and I don't know if I've mentioned this on here before, if you play the Stranger Things mobile game that came out after this show, it's, it's still available. And there is a task that you have to complete and you have to bring, you have to go find flowers from the florist and bring them back to Marissa to apologize so that she'll give you the keys to the library. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. And that's the only time we see Marissa, but she was, yeah. she, she was, she was great. Um, how about little Holly, uh, Carol Ann, her weighing into right? uh, our hearts as, as Poltergeist Jr. Yeah. Did you know that the actress that plays Holly was actually the same set of twins that played Judith in the walking dead? No, that's how long that. that show has been on the air. <laughs> but yes so i have a question for you this scene when when karen brings holly over brings the casserole over she's trying to come for joyce holly gets up and wanders around she's following these lights around which we know the lights are connected to will somehow and wherever he is did when holly's standing in i believe it's will's bedroom that's where joyce has all the lights set up correct well, she has lights all over the house, but with all the, the lamps, the lamps, um, and the and the creepy wall are in Will's room. Yes, did and then you see the you see the uh, hand come out. Yes. Do you think that it was for sure the Demogorgon's hand? Because there is, uh, there was a bit of a theory online that this was maybe Will's hand reaching for Holly. I, I think two things. Given the music, first of all. It well, was, don't you hear the purr or whatever you want to call it yeah. of the? But it was also a very, it was a very clawy, clawy hand. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a sharp and, as I recall, it was a, it was not a little boy's hand. <laughs> I didn't think <laughs> From, so either. But there was so much research done that they, these people on Reddit had me believing. I was like, maybe it was Will trying to get out. <laughs> but, now, well, I'm seeing as the monster actually comes out about ten minutes later. Right. Um, I would, I would, I would think. Well, another theory was that Holly was following the lights and we know that the lights flicker on and off when Will is present. And then, so she follows them in there and all of a sudden they stop flickering. So another theory was that it was Will, you know, she was following Will in there, but then the Demogorgon showed up and that's why the lights stopped flickering because Will had to hide. Right. And I think that's what happened later too, when he's talking to Joyce, when Mm -hmm. he's saying run. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm right here. And then somewhere in there, the Demogorgon, you know, is around the corner or something. So then he says, run. And yeah. And the Demogorgon comes out. Yeah. So. There I- was also the first shot I felt like, I know we saw her in the, saw the Demogorgon in the pool or whatever, but this I felt like was the first full blown shot that lingered on the Demogorgon. We got to see it. We it falls out of the wall, catches itself you know, pops its head up and you just have no idea what you're looking at besides a monster and you don't know where it came from or anything. But I feel like this is the first good shot 
we got of it. Yeah, because you got the brief one with Barb in the pool. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was very super quick. But yeah, this was this was and this was kind of what I was saying at the beginning. I mean, this is the first time we get to see the monster in in and of itself. I mean, we see it very quickly with Barb. Uh, well, we see its mouth with Barb in the prior chapter, and then really quickly with Barb, and then then we get kind of the full on thing here. So yeah, they're um, they're they're letting us see the monster finally after three right. chapters. And my last thing for trivia in our trivia section is when Eleven goes in to Nancy's room and she finds the ballerina jewelry box. Yes, and music starts playing, and the Tom Cruise poster. Oh, yes. I noticed the Tom Cruise. This time I was seriously <laughs> looking at what's going on in the background. Yeah. Uh, but the ballerina music that plays, I feel like this has a connection to Terry in future episodes. I feel like when they when they visit Terry, when we finally get to meet Terry, I feel like this music is connected to her. And I it I've, it's been a while since I've watched season one, so I can't remember exactly, but that's, I know that this music means something and I can't remember exactly what it, it means. It, it might be, because I think she obviously, she lingered on Barb for a while there too, when she was looking at the pictures of Nancy and Barb in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, just like Will in the previous chapter with, with the science fair picture, I think she has a sense that somehow Barb is now also, you know, hiding or you know in the yeah. upside down or, or whatever so yeah yeah so um i i want to say that that music is playing when they go to terry's house that could, there is could be so we'll get there weeks. and we'll get there in a couple of weeks yeah and see yes so are you ready for your colin moment colin moment this time around i wanted to um take you back into the wonderful world. I don't know if you ever experienced this world, but I did. And that's the wonderful world of microfiche. Oh, um, I've never just, I've only seen it in movies. You've, you've never had the pleasure? Nope, have not. Oh, that was, that was me doing research on school reports for, boy, most of the 80s. Seriously? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, look at books too. But if you want to look up newspapers and magazines... Yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't go into the library and say, I want, you know, Newsweek from six years ago. It was all on microfiche or microfilm or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I don't know if oh, my gosh. Is. But yeah. And it's all reversed, like negative images. Yeah. So you don't know what you're looking at until you until you print it. Um, but yeah, that was that was it. And I still remember, you know, you can kind of you kind of put the little thing down on the plate. It's kind of like a kind of like a microscope kind of uh-huh. it's, it's lit from underneath and you move the little plate around and you can you know move around through the whole thing and um the whole no, issue of the paper but yeah i mean i remember doing reports on all bunches of different kinds of things and if it wasn't in a book i mean if it was in a newspaper or a magazine you had to you had to dig through and what happened what was between microfiche and the internet um nothing really <laughs> i i I wouldn't, I, I mean, I don't think so either, but that's shocking to me because I don't remember I don't so. ever having to use microfiche for anything. I don't think I, I would have to look it up, but I remember, I remember microfiche vividly. This was not like just when I was eight years old or, you know, whatever, but I think well into my teen years, I think, I think I even did microfiche at college, which was late eighties. 
My husband told me that he didn't have the internet when he first started college. Like they had to go actually look up all the book, all the information in books and encyclopedias. Yeah, I, I mean, I graduated college. I graduated college in '93. We didn't have email. I mean, we had we had kind of like an intracampus kind yeah. of email thing, mm-hmm. but we didn't have email. I mean, but it wasn't until I started my first job in I was started in '93, but I remember it's like '95, '96. Till we finally, yeah, finally got 95 internet. was yeah. our internet. Yeah. It's so, crazy. It is crazy. So, Kids don't know how easy they have it. Exactly. These days. Yeah. So <laughs> that was, that was my, that was my little moment of, I was wondering if you had ever experienced microfiche or not. But, I know, don't, but I also, I'm wondering, I mean, I graduated high school in 1998. So maybe I just didn't need to look at newspapers or magazines because I mean, truly, yeah. I was doing research papers my freshman year in high school. What was I doing? Well, again, I mean, books are. I mean, you can get stuff through yeah. books. It was it was only newspapers and magazines that was that was the issue. So, yeah, I mean, if I you're doing know. it all, or if you're doing like relatively recent newspapers, if you were looking up last week's New York Times, yeah, you know, or something, or you know, whatever. Maybe that was it. But I mean, a lot of times, you know, you would just you would do a report and you would look up books. I mean, you wouldn't, yeah, necessarily go back and. Um, you know, look up stuff on microfiche, but yeah. So that was my moment. It's crazy. All right. What about our music for the week? Yes, we have a little bit of music. So we have two songs this week. Um, one of which is waiting for a girl like you from foreigner four. song came out in october of 1981 and it reached number two on the pop charts this is the scene nancy and steve are making out right or barb is being eaten or, alive or, in a pool if, however you want to look at that scene if you're glass half full half empty pessimist yes yes. <laughs> yes so that was that and then uh, the only other real song we had was uh peter gabriel's remake of david bowie's oh. heroes The David Bowie version came out in 1977. Uh, Peter Gabriel didn't record his version until 2010. That scene breaks my heart. Yes. And and the song, well, it's not obviously, the song comes back again, obviously, later in in the series. So so that was it for music this week. Oh. No real locations, though there was kind of half a one that I will mention. I won't quiz you on it unless you want to be quizzed on it. But Dustin's... Dustin's t-shirt in the opening scenes of this chapter um, says Grass Valley Guest Ranch on it. So if you want to be quizzed, I can quiz you. Otherwise, shake your head or, or nod your head. Um, I let, All right, let's do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to okay. take that. Okay, so let's play. Where in the world is Grass Valley Guest Ranch featured on Dustin's t-shirt um at the beginning of the episode when they're down talking about <laughs> lucas's nam weapons and dustin's <laughs> snacks. I love it. and dustin's twinkies uh yes grass valley guest ranch real fake and if it is real where is it i'm going with fake all around for this one I'm going with fake okay this i don't know if this is a trick question or a half a question or whatever i did some 
Google research on Grass Valley Guest Ranch. At one point until it looks like the mid to late 90s, I think, there was a place called Grass Valley Guest Ranch in Coosheram, Utah. Okay. But it has since ceased to be. And there well, when did very it exist? Well, until the mid nineties, I, I got the feeling it was, well, it could have been one of two things being in Utah. I don't know if it was necessarily a brothel, but, <laughs> but usually when you say guest ranch, <laughs> right. That's going to brothel in my mind, at least yeah. in, in Nevada. Uh, Surely or, Dustin wasn't going to those. No. Um, but it also could have been, it, it was in, it's in a Valley in Utah. So it could have been kind of a ski, like a bed and breakfasty kind of, you know, predated mm-hmm. Air, Airbnb kind of, you know, kind of thing. Um, but obviously if you do searches for it now, all you're going to find is it was on Dustin's t-shirt and buy, you know, Dustin's t-shirt that says grass Valley guest ranch. And gotcha. I bet Um, a lot of, I bet the show inspired a lot of fake merchant, not fake merchandise, but fake locations for merchandise, like camp nowhere. Yeah. Season three. So I, I, that I, did a little bit of digging for about 20 minutes or so and all i could come up with was there was a place called guest grass valley guest ranch but we I don't, don't even, know i don't even know if it was the same one if it was just named the same thing where they got this t-shirt from no idea but hmm. that's your that's your location so i won't even give you a point or take away a point or anything that's just, just that's just where even. we are yep. okay all right okay you want to do some, I got, I got a couple other notes that I wanted to go through okay, um, do that. that um, we had talked about, we had talked about little Holly and I saw an interview, I think it was with the Duffer brothers in EW um, after this episode. And they said that the twins that played Holly were just so completely great. And everything that she has said to this point with the nodding and the shaking her mm-hmm. head and, and the, and the yes, when Joyce asked her, none of that is scripted. I've read that as well. Yeah, it was all just her kind of reacting in the moment. So mm-hmm. that's good awesome. On you, good on you, Holly. Yeah, <laughs> Holly babies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing that I found um, was that the original plan and the Duffer Brothers said in their original pitch to Netflix, the kids were going to be using the Christmas lights to track the Demogorgon. But that somewhere along the line, they can't remember who it was, but one of the writers suggested that Joyce use the Christmas lights to communicate with Will. So that wasn't the original plan, what huh. Joyce ended up doing. It was originally going to be, you know, the teenagers, but then somewhere sitting around a writer's table, um, you know, somebody said, hey, what if Joyce did it? And well, know, it worked. It. So, and this, this was really interesting too, because in that, in the book, The World's Turned Upside Down, um, they talk about um, set decorator, uh, Jess Royal was kind of the one in charge of it. And, and it says that she strung the lights on the set and then worked closely with the show's electricians to develop a master control panel so that each bulb and overhead light could be turned on and off as needed for the individual scenes. And she says, I like the tinkering and just the logistics of making stunts and effects like that work in the old school way a show in the 1980s would have done it. And then Levy remembers the lights as one of the most unexpected challenges of that season. He said, it turns out that Christmas lights don't normally blink in a sequence that communicates narrative. (laughs) Programming them was not as easy as one might imagine, but it led to one of the most iconic images of the show. And that also, I also wanted to mention, I love how when Joyce has the ball of them and is sitting in the kind of the break frame (laughs) and they don't go all the way out. They're on just faintly enough, which Mm -hmm. is kind of interesting. And she's, she's, coddling them like like a child like she's just it's almost uncomfortable to watch oh absolutely 
Um, which also leads me to when they were talking about the 1980 stunts, they did a lot of the visual effects and stuff like that in camera. There wasn't a lot of visual effects per se until they got to season two and then they were like all over the place. Um, but one scene in particular when Eleven crushes the Coke can, mm-hmm. um, that was done right there. I mean, they really did it. They didn't, you know, it wasn't a magic tricky kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I was looking, I was looking this up and I'm like, and I, I kept looking up, you know, Eleven crushing Coke can, how did they do it and blah, blah, blah. And there's all kinds of YouTube videos about how you could do it at home. If you wanted to, you could tie a string and put it through the table. And blah, That's blah, blah. what I thought they were doing. Right. But then I was looking through the book again and there was a picture and I'll show it to you here. And then we'll also put it up on our Twitter page. You can see the picture, right? Mm-hmm. So look under the Coke can. Oh, you can see the There's like a little black mechanism peg. or There's something, a little, a little peg or something that shows how they did it, you know, right in camera. They didn't have to do any kind of visual effects or anything. They don't say exactly how it worked. No, but I imagine, I mean, there was one video I saw of a guy, you kind of tie a string up through the Coke can and up through the table. And mm-hmm. if, if you tie it on really tight and then go under the table, you can yank down really hard. And if it's yeah. centered, you can kind of crush the Coke can make it look like it crushed. So yeah, I thought that was uh, that is cool. That was yeah, I it that is one downfall of CGI. I feel like is that so many other almost all movies rely on that more than practical effects these days. And so when we do get practical effects, we're they look better. Yeah, almost absolutely. all of the time. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention too was in the quarry scene um when um the they are pulling the body out and it's dressed you know obviously like will was dressed with the with the marty mcfly vest and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff in an interview um finn uh, wolfhard who plays mike was saying that they wanted us to cry or whatever and caleb would get it super easy he could just turn it off and turn it on and turn it off super quick and be funny again i had never really cried before on camera and gaten was starting to cry but he couldn't do it gaten was laughing and i was laughing because he was laughing <laughs> And he couldn't do it. Then all of a sudden, Gaten started crying and they were like, okay, start, roll it. And he did it. And then then after that, we were just back to normal. It was kind of like an instantaneous thing. So that's how the kids, you know, did their little bit of crying. You can tell Lucas is actually, not that they they weren't, but Lucas sounds the most realistic because he is congested when he says it. You can hear you know, the congestion from crying. Yeah. And I thought, I thought this was a really interesting kind of character development here too, because Lucas all along has been the one, you know, let's get rid of this freak. I don't want her around, you know, she's, you know, messing mm-hmm. up everything, blah, blah, blah. And he's the one that says, you know, look, Mike, take it easy, man. Right. He's you the know, one that calms Mike down. You know, and Mike was the one that's been all calm. So we're kind of, kind of getting mm-hmm. some character arcs going here, which was, which was kind of interesting too. Yeah. So. Uh, tech wise, I did want to mention, um, obviously, Sean Levy directed this, the Duffer Brothers didn't. So um, cinematography for these two episodes, this one and the next one was done by Todd Campbell, who did both of Sean's uh, episodes this season and next season. Uh, he's done stuff like on Homecoming and Mr. Robot and stuff like that. Um, but I thought there's a lot of really good use of light and lens flare and sunshine and stuff. The one scene where they faded from the red light in the dark room to the red Christmas light in uh-huh. Joyce's house. I thought that was really cool. Um, a lot of little nifty stuff like that. So kudos for cinematographer Todd Campbell for this episode, which I thought was, which was interesting. Um, I don't think there was anything else that we haven't talked about yet. If you want to get to superlatives. Ooh. Superlatives, we have uh, best line, most spirited, 
most strangest and MVP. So you want to start with best line? Yes. My best line was one word. (laughs) It is Mike when he's in the basement and all the kids are over before school, which is a pet peeve of mine in movies and TV shows, because we're, how do these people have so much time before they get to school? I don't know what it's like at your house, but at our house, it is not like that. We are running around. We do not have time for, you know, full cooked breakfasts. We are grabbing pop tarts while we're running out the door to be there on time. We are, we are not, I don't know. We're not an organized family. I should say. You don't have time to put maple syrup on your scrambled eggs. No, no, No. I don't. (laughs) I also don't have to have time for my friends to come over and hang out before school. Right. But they're, they're, you know, Karen yells at them, come on boys, it's time for school. And she yells at Mike again. And Mike, it just, it, it's so accurate of, as being a kid, if you get agitated, he just turns around, he goes coming. And like, yeah. he's so angry. <laughs> like for a split second, he gets so annoyed and yeah. it, it, I lost it when he, good. when he screams that. So yeah. that was my line for the week mine was marissa in the library i just thought her line was excellent i mean she had like three lines in the whole chapter the whole series <laughs> it's a whole career and it was you know you could have at least called and said marissa hey it's not going to work out sorry i wasted your time i'm a dick <laughs> which i thought was great but she delivered yeah. it she delivered it much better than i did it was really mm-hmm. it's, it's it's actually worth going back to watch it again she's she was so yeah great. So. that is a great line okay most spirited I went with the commercials that Eleven sees when she is left alone in Mike's house. You get the, you get Ray, well, not necessarily commercials, but Reagan and He-Man, Coca-Cola. And then what was the other one you said? I didn't know this one. You told me this oh, one. The Harmony Treasures Collection. Yeah, but not, it's not I, real, I think, right? I don't think it's a real thing. No, but it's it's very similar to uh, oh, the, the commemorative plates and all those. So like, of, yeah, because yeah, I didn't catch the, what it was. What, the latest thing from the Franklin Mint or, you know, whatever. It was like little figurines or, you know, that kind of like stuff. Like when they so. would bring out like, cor- like, mem- like commemorative quarters and stuff? Yeah, that, that like After stuff. 9-11? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But more along the lines of, you know, cheesy chotskis that you would put on your armoire kind of things, you know, like little, you know, figurine bears or, you know, a little village or something like that. Okay. That was the impression that I got. So uh, my most spirited was right, right in that. And the fact that I've been humming the Coke is it theme for the past week <laughs> uh, should, should give you an indication of, yeah. So I was going, I went with the Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola ad. Most strangest thing from this episode. I went with Barb's death. Barb's death when she gets devoured by the Demogorgon. It's first shot in the episode and it is jarring to say the least. Well, the whole episode is, I mean, the beginning of the episode is jarring because mm-hmm. we, get, we get her and, you know, yes. up water or whatever. And like, where is she? Her glasses are broken. Yes. It's, everything's blue. There's vines and creepiness was... all over the place and ashes are floating through the air. And what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was bizarre and it yeah. bothered me. So that was definitely yeah. my most stranger. Mine was, and it was, it was just, it's just an image that has stayed with me like through the entire run of the series over and over again. And that's the R U N. Oh yeah. With the, with the, and the, and the percussion is. A and you know, yeah. as, you know, as soon as it hits R. Yeah. I did. I was like, I know what it's going to, it's going to say yeah. run. It's going to say run. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay, MVP for this episode, actor or performer, performance, whichever you prefer. I went with Mike Wheeler slash Finn Wolfhard because he 
we get to see him interact with Eleven more and the line with his mom made me laugh, but his, he's just, he gets picked on by the bullies again. And he just, the way he reacts and he's hurt and he's mad, but he knows that he knows that he can't beat these guys. It was just that scene where they trip him. And it really does look like he hits his chin really hard on that rock. Right. And which ends up becoming the monster killer rock. It does. And, but it actually looks like the actor Finn Wolfhard actually hit his chin. There's only a couple of scenes in movies where I can remember thinking like, Oh my gosh, that hurt. That had to have hurt. And one is the scene with Marty McFly when he falls out of the tree and back to the future and gets hit by the car and he bangs his head on the pavement. Yep, his yep. head bounces yes. on the pavement and it yep. looks like it hurt. And another one is the remake of Dawn of the dead where Sarah Polly's character is backing up. It's in the like, explosive intro to that movie she backs up and she falls into the bathtub and it looks like it hurt it looks like the actor actually it wasn't a stunt double yeah, or anything yeah no it. i thought i thought he was great in this episode and i loved yeah. and it's really difficult to explain it but in the quarry scene um when he's talking to 11 or yelling at 11 saying mm-hmm. you lied to us you lied to us and then they're all like mike and then he gives this look it's kind of like a you know what you know, get out of yeah. your face. Look, yes, it's just, it's just a, it's just a split second, but yeah, I thought, I thought it was great. Cause that's something well, that's not scripted. I mean, you're not going to have a line there. Give that mm-hmm. weird look like, you know, get out of my face, look or whatever. Yes. He just did that. And I thought, it well, was, and thought he it was great. even co- to continue on that when he gets home and he walks in and Karen, and I will, I, I do like Karen Wheeler as a character and she's, while she might not know where her kids are all the time, she's pretty in tune with what's going on because she, yeah. they just have to give her a look and she knows that something's wrong. Yeah, right. And she does it with Nancy and she does it with Mike in this episode. And I thought it was cool how they did the, you know, it was kind of identical scenes of Karen hugging Mike, Mike, like just like breaking down to her. And so it's a mother comforting her child. And then you flip back to Jonathan and, and Joyce and it's the child comforting the mother and it mm-hmm. was just the juxtaposition of it was just I liked it and I know that's a little bit further than Finn Wolfhard yeah. in this answer but, but no, that's fine that's- uh mine I was kind of torn I feel like I could give it to Winona Ryder every week and mm-hmm. especially this week because she was acting by herself I mean you know she's communicating with will but will is not there she is right. doing this all herself i mean she is playing off nothing mm-hmm. she's playing off lights blinking in her hand and i think she just she killed it in this episode but i'm actually i'm gonna give it to millie bobby brown in this one and i don't think we've no we've really given it to her yet have we which is we haven't yeah um because i think of the two flashback scenes uh with the coke can and then also with the rabbit and then the orderlies in the hallway you mean the cat um, yeah, the cat. Well, the Coke can and then the cat and the orderlies. Yeah, the two different yes. flashbacks. Um, yeah, I think I think she did great stuff in just those two scenes by themselves. But she's really developing, too. The more she mm-hmm. talks and the more, you know, she's kind of getting a personality and stuff. I think, you know, she's kind of coming into her own, too. And I have a feeling as we go forward, we're going to be alternating between Winona Ryder and Millie Bobby Brown for the right. <laughs> the entirety of this. Um, but I think this was, this was a scene where she really, really shined. So she, she did. And it, even in that scene with Mike, where you're talking, we were talking about with where he's yelling at her, she, the look on her face, like you said, there, there's no lines there, but she just looks so hurt and she can't explain you. She just with that look, you know, that she's saying, I can't explain where he is. 
I'm trying to help. I'm doing the best that I can, but right. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So that's it for superlatives. And that does it for this episode as well. So next week we will be talking about episode four or chapter four, I should say called the body where we will continue on this journey of finding Will's body. And is it will, is it not? Will? where is will that's what we're all asking. So if you have any questions or things that you want to tell us comments, you can always email us at scoopsahoypod at gmail.com. You can find us on all the socials at scoopsahoypod and you could follow us, like us, leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify. We would really appreciate it. So it helps us get in front of more listeners that would potentially like the show. So I want to thank everybody for listening and I hope you tune in next time. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye. Stranger Things audio clips and official score are the property of Netflix. Incidental music by Blue Mount Score from Pixabay.